Well, good morning, Cuyahoga Valley Church. It's good to be with you guys. I hope your year has been off to a new start, a great new start. Uh, I just want to say I admire you for being here because I know a lot of you had to dig out uh, to get here. And so we had some people at first service, second service, and here. And so you guys are like warriors with all this snowmageddon stuff going on. So yeah, you guys are awesome. Um, I know and suspect we probably have a large online audience right now, people that are watching live online that could not dig out. But can you give them a hand and just shout to them, let them know that you're here. And <laughs> uh, one other thing of gratitude, um, there's just a couple unsung heroes, a couple guys that show up every week early. Uh, we got a guy named Mark who fires this place up and helps get the place ready. And then we've got a guy named Mike. And Mike, I think, was here from like 1230 to 630 plowing. So we could even have a parking lot. So can you just give them a hand and say thank you to those guys? Those guys are, are awesome. <laughs> Well, it's good to be back with you. Uh, my family and I had a great time uh, spending, you know, some time with family and friends in California at the end of last year. And then after the first of the year, my wife, Rika, the kids uh, flew back here to Cleveland. I flew on to Israel to uh, do a scouting and preparing trip for our church's next uh, study tour in Israel. And so I just got back and that, that was amazing. I cannot wait to take a bunch of you in October to basically the greatest Bible classroom out there to open up the, the Word of God on site and for fresh meaning and unique meaning to happen there. And so I'm uh, glad to be back. That was a phenomenal time. And I also want to thank uh, just the guys that held down the four. I want to thank uh, Kyle Gustafson for teaching and also Pastor Dale, Pastor Joe. On the trip, I was networking with a lot of other pastors that were there that take their church on trips as well. And we were just talking about our teams and who holds down the fort. And every time I have those conversations, I'm just filled with gratitude for the team that we have. Because I hope you know, there's a lot of churches out there that would love to have the depth of teachers that we have. Like we've just got a good group of men and women that love God's word, can teach God's word. And so uh, we celebrate that God has given us that many people who can communicate the truth of God's word because it's, it's an important thing to have that kind of level of teaching. And speaking of teaching, yeah, praise God, praise God. Yeah, come on. It's a clapping morning. Got to warm those hands up. Speaking of teaching, if you've been paying attention since about mid-December, uh, most of the people that are up here asking you to open your Bibles each week are saying something like this, turn to the book of Luke, turn to the book of Luke, turn to the book of Luke. And some of you are starting to suspect, I think we're in a teaching series in the book of Luke. And you would be correct. Uh, we are going to be spending the next year and a half through the gospel book of Luke. For those of you who are newer in your faith or maybe your guests, uh, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four books in the New Testament of the Bible that really uh, have four angles on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And the reason we're gonna be spending time in Luke, and by the way, we're not doing verse by verse all the way through Luke. We're going really through a lot of the majority of the content in multiple series, and we're gonna sprinkle some other teaching series in the mix, you know, with some breaks. But um, the year and a half or so in Luke is intended for us to just walk closer with Christ. And here's why. The more time you spend with Christ, the more we become like Christ. And so uh, spending an extended time in one gospel, even though it's going to be in and out through different series, will just remind us of who Jesus is, what he taught, what he did in the lives of other people, what was said about him. And we hope that that doesn't just give us information, but really it brings transformation through our life. Because when we follow Jesus, it affects everything. Like our relationships, how we see our time, our money, our resources.
resources, our purpose in life, and everything. And so spending time uh, walking with Jesus a little closer through one of the gospel books, this, this one being Luke, will help us grow in our faith. And so that's what we're going to be doing. Now, uh, Luke was written again by this man named Luke who diligently researched and recorded the events of Christ's life and death and resurrection through those who were eyewitnesses. And he was, he was uh, obsessed with accuracy as a historian. And he had a goal for this. And the goal were, uh, were given in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. He says this. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so the goal, as we look through Luke, is to reinforce the certainty of what we believe. Pastor Joe talked about this a couple weeks ago, how we have substantial answers for what we believe, not cloud answers that blow away with doubt or discouragement, but mountain answers that we can anchor ourselves to. And so we've been taught many things about the Lord, but one of the things we need to be certain about is how we answer who Jesus is. This is not a question you want to get wrong. The most important question Jesus ever asked was, who do you say that I am? And we do not want to get that wrong because not only do our lives here on earth depend on it, but our eternity depends on it. And so who do we see Jesus ask? Well, we know that he is not just a man, but that he's also God. And we're going to be spending the next few months just immersing ourselves in uh, several passages in Luke as we move through Luke, looking at how Jesus is God and man and what the implications are for our lives as we worship one who is both God and man. And so that's really the theme we're going to be pressing into. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of, hey, any guesses? Luke, you're you're sharp, okay? And we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. Verse 15 through 22, as we resume Luke, but kick off actually a new emphasis on Luke, looking at Jesus as God and man. And we're here to answer two questions today in these passages. The first question is, how is the divinity of Jesus validated in these passages? Like, what do we see and hear that reinforces our understanding that Jesus is God? Second is, how do we live differently because of it? Uh, obviously, it's great to have that information, but we want the application, uh, the transformation to come from that. So I invite you to open up your Bibles, your Bible apps to Luke chapter 3. Let's read Luke three fifteen through 22. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word today, instruct us, teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, get me out of the way that anything I say would not be a distraction. Lord, we pray that your uh, true, pure word will penetrate our hearts and not just give us a download of information that enriches our understanding, Lord, but really does stir our hearts to application and transformation through you and your power. 
Help us see more clearly Jesus today because of our time and help us live differently because of it. We ask in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. First question, how is the divinity of Jesus validated in these verses? Well, we see two voices testify to Jesus as God. First is the voice of this man known as John the Baptist. And this is obviously not John the Apostle. This is a different guy. John's a common name. So this is not John who wrote the book of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is John known as John the Baptist. And we see here in verse 15, if we look at it again, that there's some curiosity swirling about John. It says, the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now, uh, Here's the situation. God had promised that he was going to send a Messiah, an anointed one, a Christ, who would rescue his people, who would deliver his people. And God had given plenty of indicators that uh, this person is going to fulfill prophecy. They're going to have a very distinct life. What they teach and how they teach it, what they're going to do is going to stand out. And so uh, the people of the Jewish nation were eagerly longing for this Messiah to show up. And here you have now a guy named John who comes out of nowhere in the wilderness. And he's unlike anybody they've seen or heard. I mean, the guy is wearing an outfit made out of camel hair. I don't know if you've ever pet a camel. It's coarse. It's itchy. This is not a trendy outfit. You know what I'm saying? And on top of that, he eats bugs, right, and honey. Like, this, is, this is just a, a very uh, off-the-wall dude. And he's preaching this message, repent. Pastor Dale talked about this last week. He's telling everybody, repent, turn from your sin, turn from your sin, get serious about God, turn to God. And so he is definitely drawing the crowds. This guy is a hot item right now. Like his Facebook is blowing up with friends' requests. His Twitter and Instagram is blowing up with people. He's on the news. Everybody is coming to see and hear John. And it says that uh, people were coming from around the area. So literally, people would probably travel a day or two, half a day to two days, to the wilderness. This is the lower region of uh, the Jordan River to hear this guy. So it's like, hey, honey, pack up the kids. We, we, there's some crazy guy out there. We got to go hear this guy and pack him up and travel uh, anywhere from a half a day to two days to hear and see John. And the thing that they're wondering is, is John the guy? Is John the Christ? He's different. He's bold. He's preaching. He's, he's, he's really kind of blowing the mold of what we would expect. Could he be the one that's come to fix all our problems? Could he be the Messiah? And so John's ministry provokes this messianic anticipation. But then John busts their bubble. He sets them straight. He knows who he is, and he knows who he's not, and he knows who's coming. Look at verse 16 again. He answered them saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John said, no, I am not him. There is one coming who's mightier than I, who's superior than I. And then he uses baptism as a contrast to just how far superior the Christ who's coming is going to be compared to himself. Now, John's baptism that he was doing down there in the Jordan River was immersion in water in the Jordan. It was an external washing that symbolized uh, repentance and sorrowfulness of sin. It was uh, repentance of sin and preparation for the coming of Christ who he was preaching about. So this baptism didn't save people. 
It was just an action that demonstrated their seriousness about following God. And so John here is declaring that his water baptism is external, but the one who's coming, his baptism is going to be internal and eternal. And so the coming Christ is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? It means that when Christ shows up and he starts to preach and invite people into belief in him, there are going to be those who believe and those who do not. Those who repent, those who do not. And there's going to be a different baptism for each one. For those who believe, they will be baptized by the Holy Spirit, meaning that believers in Christ will be given the indwelling power and presence of God in their lives for understanding for direction, for empowerment, and for verification that they truly are children of God. So the Messiah baptizing believers with the Holy Spirit will wash from the inside. It brings renewal. It brings regeneration to those who come to Christ. Well, there's only one person who can baptize with the Holy Spirit. It's God. And so clearly this Christ is going to be God because only God can baptize with the Spirit. And just an encouragement, if you've come to faith in Christ, if you've acknowledged that you're a sinner and you believe in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave offer you forgiveness and reconciliation with God, at that moment of faith, belief, conversion, whatever you want to call it, you then are baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is an internal baptism. But there's this other baptism mentioned here, baptism by fire. Well, what is that? Because it sounds very painful, and I don't think I want to stand in that line, okay? Well, if believers in Christ are baptized with the Spirit, then those who reject Christ will be baptized with fire. One of the interpretations here is that fire is a reference to judgment for those who do not repent and do not believe in Christ. And I believe the reason that we can interpret this more strongly as a reference to judgment rather than just a fire being another reference to the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit's uh, work in our life is because of the context that we see in the very next verse. The context is now judgment. Look at verse 17, speaking of Messiah, speaking of Christ. It says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn away with unquenchable fire. This is strong language to speak to a future judgment of humanity. And it's language that can get lost in our 21st century Western American modern mindset. We need to go back to a more ancient mindset to understand the terminology and the visual picture that's being painted here. So obviously uh, for us, if we, if we want grain, flour, whatever, we go to the store, we grab a bag, we put it in the cart, we check out. But obviously, in a highly agricultural ancient society, you got to grow your own and harvest your own. And so wheat was a huge, and still is, a huge crop in the Middle East. And the, the process of harvesting was the workers would go into the field when the harvest was ripe, and they would cut down with a sickle of some sort, they would cut down the wheat, and then they would put it in loose sheaths, and then they would bring it to what's called the threshing floor. And then they would pile it onto the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor is a large, flat, hard, round surface. Sometimes rock. Sometimes they put rock on the ground. Or sometimes it's just very hard dirt. And what they would do is they'd pile all of this material with the wheat, the stalks, the husk, and everything onto the threshing floor. And then they brought out the tools for separation. 
And one tool is called the threshing board. Here's a picture of one that, uh, from Israel. And it's basically a large wood board, thick board, that they drill holes into the bottom. And then they take rocks and they pound it into the bottom to give it, you know, that, that bumpy surface. Think of like a giant cheese grater, right? And then they take the threshing board and then they pull it behind uh, an ox or a mule, or if you don't have animals, maybe you get your teenage kids, right? And you, they would pull it around in a circular fashion on the threshing floor with usually sometimes they'll have kids riding on it to, for weight or the person behind it would stand on it for weight. And then what would happen is as the rocks would move over the threshing floor, it would smash the wheat grain, breaking the grain out from the husk. It was separating the wheat from the husk and all the other sediment parts, the stalk, etc. And so the threshing floor is a place of separation. And then what they did next is then they would take a wood, I don't have a wood one, so we'll have to use this, a, a wood pitchfork called a winnowing fork. And what they would do is then they would take the threshing floor, they would grab as much of that sediment and fling it into the air repeatedly. And what's happening in that moment is all the materials going up in the sky, the heavier wheat falls to the ground, and then that's going to be collected into baskets and then taken to the, the barn, right, to store. And then everything else, the husk, the sediment, all that stuff's called chaff. And some of the chaff that was really fine would blow away in the wind. They'd always find a good spot or a good time of day to winnow so that the wind would catch the light chaff and blow it away. But then all the heavier chaff, some of the husk particles and, and stock particles would kind of fall to the side. And so just over and over, they would just winnow this up in the air, separating the wheat from the chaff. And then to clear the threshing floor, they would bring all the chaff together, light it on fire, burn it off, and then they would have just the wheat. And what John is saying here is that this one who is coming, this one who can baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, unquenchable fire, is going to bring humanity to this place of a threshing floor. And we believe that's the second return of Jesus Christ. Jesus promised to return. And when Christ comes, he's going to judge humanity. This is going to be the eternal threshing floor. And in that moment, after uh, the, the judgment, Jesus is going to, if you will, metaphorically, he's going to winnow out the believers from the unbelievers. He's going to sift and separate those who are the wheat and those who are the chaff. And here's the tragic misperception in the church. The tragic misperception in the church today is that everybody in the church is wheat. Just because I go to church, or I have a church I go to a couple times a year, or just because I read a Bible, or just because I uh, call myself a Christian, that means I'm automatically wheat. But see, as we continue to read Scripture over and over and over again, you see that only true faith in Christ will identify the person as wheat. Only that person who's been baptized with the Holy Spirit is the wheat. Everyone else is chaff. And the sad, sobering reality is that when you look at a community like a church, this church, this service, other times, people watching online, is that we know that we have neighbors and friends and guests, we have relatives, we have spouses, we have children, we have parents, that some are wheat and some are chaff. And at some point in time, when Christ returns, he's going to sift us and separate one from the other. And I think that's going to be a great day of joy for many people, and it's going to be a great day of agony for others. I think the question we have to ask ourselves is if that 
threshing floor moment happened right now. Two questions. One, would you be wheat or chaff? Do you truly believe? Because when you evaluate a person's life, and if a person doesn't love and worship Christ, has no interest in the Bible, has no interest in praying, has no desire to live for Christ, has no interest to make disciples of Jesus, doesn't do anything to glorify Christ whatsoever, when you start to look at that type of life, would you make the assumption that that person is wheat or chaff? What would you say? Chaff. Chaff. And we all have people that we love dearly that may be chaff. And if the Lord were to come today, would you be wheat or would you be chaff? The wheat's gathered into the barn, heaven. The chaff is burned, hell. The second question that comes out of that is, if we have loved ones or chaff, what are we doing about it? Like, what are we doing about it? Are we just kind of like, ah, hope for the best? Are we praying for them? Are we, are we modeling a life that, that shows that Jesus is real? Not perfect, <laughs> but a life that's dependent on Christ. Are we, are we sharing with the people we know and love that don't know Jesus? See, see, all this language points to this one who is coming, this Messiah, this Christ. Only God can baptize with the Holy Spirit. Only God can baptize with fire and have a threshing floor and a winnowing fork. And we know that Jesus is this Messiah. And so clearly through the voice of John and through all these examples that he's making, this is one of the reasons we validate Jesus is God. Now, what if you're sitting here today and going, um, I think I'm the chaff. What if you're watching right now and you're thinking, I think I'm the chaff. I, I don't know if I'd go to heaven. I don't know if I really have that relationship. Or maybe you know you don't. How do you cross that threshold of faith? You just have to believe. You have to trust. You have to, you have to authentically believe. Uh, you can do what you know, has been called the ABCs of faith. Uh, first, you have to admit. Everyone say admit. You have to admit to God that you're a sinner, that you're broken, you're lost, you're sinful, and that you can't fix yourself. You have to admit to God that you're a sinner. The second, you have to believe. Everyone say believe. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is both God and man, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the grave to give you eternal life. You have to believe that, not just a head belief, but a heart, a heart belief. And then you have to confess. Everyone say confess. It's the C, you confess that Jesus is your Savior and you commit to live your life following him. This is kind of an easy way to understand what it means to, to turn, to repent. You have to admit that you're a sinner to God. You have to believe in Christ and you have to confess him as Savior and commit to live for him. And so if you've never done that, you can do that today in this moment. You don't, we don't need to stop. We don't need to bow. We don't need to pray. You can just be having this conversation with God right now. Okay, ABC, Lord, I, I admit at any point today, tomorrow, whenever you're ready. But if you do that today, we want to celebrate that with you. And we want to come alongside you and help you grow in the most amazing relationship there is, a relationship with God. And so uh, in your response card, there's a spot there that says receiving Christ. Would you mark that today? Turn that in at the end of the service in the baskets and we'll get in touch with you and just joyfully tell you how to grow in your new relationship with the Lord. If you're watching online and that's never happened for you, email us at connect at cvconline.org and we'll get in touch with you. But all that to say, this is understanding that 
Through the voice of John, God is validating Jesus as God. But John's voice isn't the only voice we see here. We see a second voice, a more significant voice. We see the voice of God the Father himself. Skip down to Luke 3, 21 and 22 again. So there's all these masses of people. They're all getting baptized, right? It says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, which that's a cool note, by the way. Luke's the only gospel writer that records that uh, during his baptism, Jesus was actually talking to the Father. He was praying. And at that point, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like, everyone say like, like a dove. doesn't say as a dove. It's not an actual dove. It's like a dove, an appearance, a nature, something, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, this is from the Father, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. What a beautiful moment that we see that God the Father's voice is validating this at the baptism of Jesus. Now, a couple things just to really understand the baptism of Jesus. Uh, this was about six months after John the Baptist started his ministry. So this is about 26 AD or so. And John's down in the lower Jordan River, south of um, the Sea of Galilee, down in the Judean wilderness. Uh, the book of Mark tells us that Jesus was in Nazareth at the time, in the region of Galilee. Jesus leaves Nazareth for this moment. So this is a 60 or 70 mile trek. Might have took a day or so to get there. Jesus is coming down to the wilderness to be baptized by John. When you hear the word wilderness, this is an image. I took this picture last week. For those of you who've been to Israel, this will be familiar to you. When they say wilderness, they're not joking, okay? Like right by the river Jordan, like if you're looking at the river and then you turn around, this is what you see. Rocks, pebbles, dirt, sand, hills, as far as you can see. There's just nothing out there but dirt and rocks and a few brush piles every now and then. And so how fascinating that God was using John in such a powerful way that people were flocking through this wilderness. And Jesus came to this wilderness to the river Jordan. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus was baptized. Uh, there is a traditional site that a lot of people have you know, looked at. This is a picture I took last week of that traditional site. There's a deck that's been built going down to the Jordan River. Um, we don't know for sure this is the spot, but you know what? It's got to be close. It's within the region somewhere. And obviously, uh, this is not what everything looked like back then. There was no deck, probably not those palm trees, right? Um, tell you right now, you probably don't want to be baptized in that water because you'll probably catch something, right? This water is like, it was, it was different water. And this is really an interesting site because if you get out there, um, you're, you're on the Israeli side looking at the Jordan River, but across the bank is the Jordanian side. And so you've got Israeli flag, Jordanian flag, Israeli police, Jordanian police, and people are, you know, getting into the, into the Jordan and being baptized. And then when you turn around, uh, there's fencing out in the distance uh, with little yellow signs on the fencing that's basically saying, don't go out there because there's landmines. Because <laughs> this is, you know, this is, you know, this is a place where there's been a lot of battles, right? And so it's like, don't go out there. Who knows what's still out there from all these battles that have been fought over the years. And so the, the point is that there's this place. It's a real place. And even though this is a traditional place, it doesn't matter. There was a wilderness. There was this place in the Jordan where Jesus got baptized. But why did he get baptized? Because that's the question we start to find ourselves asking. Wait a second. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for sinners to repent. Jesus was sinless. What did he, he didn't need to repent of anything. So why did Jesus get baptized? And some of you are thinking, well, it was a long journey from Nazareth. He probably just wanted to get cleaned off, right? 
No, why, why did Jesus get baptized? Now, when we look at this account from the book of Matthew, Jesus says it's to fulfill righteousness. But commentators and theologians have been wrestling through this for years, and there's kind of a, a top 10 of just a lot of common answers that are really good. Uh, this is one of the favorite summaries that I have found to kind of understand why Jesus got baptized. And it says he got baptized to identify, prophesy, and verify. And to identify means he's identifying with us and our need for forgiveness, and him being the means of that forgiveness from God. And so uh, he's identifying with us as people who need to be forgiven, sinful people. He's also providing an example for us in identifying with us. He didn't need to get baptized, but he submitted and, and he you know, part, partook for our benefit. So he's identifying with us. The second is to prophesy. Uh, basically that this is a prophetic image a visual image of what was going to happen and, and the ministry of Jesus. That just as he went down in the water and came out, that was a visual image of his future death and then resurrection. And so this is a, is a very prophetic moment in his life as his ministry is getting started. And also to verify. This is to verify his identity as Messiah, as Christ, as Savior. This is where we see the Lord's voice because you have this mass of people being baptized. Like, look, I remember my baptism. I hope you remember yours. I remember my pastor baptizing me. I remember I was with my mom and my sister. I remember that when I came out of the water, I was filled with joy that I just obediently got baptized, that this identified me with my Savior who I love, that I love Jesus and I want everybody to know. Um, this is what happened at my baptism. Uh, what did not happen at my baptism is the heavens did not open, no voice came out of heaven, and nothing fell out of the sky on me, right? I would imagine that didn't happen for you either. So here's this moment. All these people are being baptized, but then one person has something very unique happen. And when Jesus is baptized, all of a sudden, the heavens break open. The voice of the Father, this is my son. This is my essence. This is the one on whom I'm well pleased. Everything's going to be about him. This voice validates that this is, this is God. This is divine. This just isn't some person being baptized. And so we, we see this moment, and then we see the Holy Spirit like some sort of the way it you know, flitted, you know, flitted down or whatever, landed on him. It was like a dove. And not only do we have an audible endorsement from God the Father, but now we have a visual endorsement from God the Spirit, lighting on Jesus saying, everything about salvation is going to be now centered on this person. This is God in the flesh. And we have this beautiful snapshot of the Trinity, don't we? Like the, the Trinity is confusing to us, one God, but he's revealed himself in three distinct personhoods, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now we've got the voice of the Father from heaven, simultaneously as God the Son is in the water, simultaneously by the Holy Spirit is coming down like a dove. And what a beautiful picture of the God that we serve. But this is a moment where Jesus is validated by the voice of the Father, not just the voice of John the Baptist. This is proving that Jesus is God. You don't want to get this wrong. You don't want to get Jesus wrong because our life now and our eternity count on it. So we see how the divinity of Jesus is validated in these verses. But what does that mean for us? How do we tackle the second question? How do we live differently because of it? See, understanding Jesus is God will automatically demand a response from our life. The way we think, the way we act will all be changed once we realize who Jesus is. And so how we speak and how we live and what we're about. 
And so knowing with certainty that Jesus is God changes our lives. It transforms us. Now, there are many ways, and we can sit here and share our stories about how we can be transformed because Jesus is God. But I want to zoom in on three uh, characteristics we see in John that I think are true of us. Because John knew that Christ was God. And because of that, we see three attributes in his life. So from the text, what are three ways we can also uh, be changed because of this? Well, first, when we realize that Jesus is God, we can live humbly. Humbly. See, when you look at verse 16 again, all the crowds are marveling at John. John's a big deal. John in that moment, John in his humanity could have gone, hey, this feels pretty good, man. All these people are traveling to come see me. I've got a massive crowd, hundreds, thousands of people. I'm, I'm kind of the man right now, right? This is good. Does he do that? Uh-uh. When pressed, he says, whoa, time out. I'm nothing. I'm nothing in comparison to the one who's coming. And he says, one who's coming is mightier than I. And then he says something that, again, can get lost in our current context. He says, I'm not even unworthy to untie his sandals. So we understand that the common footwear of the day were sandals. They didn't have nice hiking shoes like we do, right? And so muddy roads, dirty roads, dusty roads, roads covered with animal feces and urine or whatever else is on the roads. Like these feet are stepping in these things. These sandals are just, you know, stuck with all the stuff. And so a lot of times when you came into the house, there's only one of two people that remove the sandals in a home. The person wearing them or the servant of the house. And do you see what John is saying here? He's saying, there's such a great distance between me and Christ that I'm not even worthy to be the slave that unties his sandals. I'm less than the servant that would untie the sandals of this one coming. What great humility. He's saying, I'm nothing in comparison. And so he humbles himself. He knows his role. He knows that he's the forerunner of Christ, but he knows he's a man under authority. He knows who he answers to. He understands the identity of Christ, and he lives humbly. And I think that's something that we can continue to be in check. I mean, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but anyone else have a pride issue in life, right? Anyone else here think they're always right? They're always the best way? You know, we, we all have this stubbornness, this pride in our life. And once we start to realize that Jesus is God and he rules and reigns and we don't, we can bring ourselves under him. The glory of Christ assaults our pride. And we can humble ourselves and bring ourselves under him and start to treat others more valuable. Not to get um, so spin out when something's not going our way in life because we're humbled under the Lord. And so we know that uh, we can live more humbly when we see Jesus as, as God. He's great, we're not. He rules, not us. When's the last time Jesus has humbled you? When's the last time something has come into your life where you realize you're not God? And so because Jesus is God, we can live humbly. Secondly, we also can live courageously. John knew his calling. He knew the one he served, so he also was able to courageously preach his message. And he preached to whoever was in the crowd. His crowd was mixed. There were common people. There were self-righteous religious leaders. There were soldiers. There were um, tax collectors. And so you imagine how intimidating it must have been to see a soldier, a Roman soldier, and be like, you have to repent. 
It's like, man, that guy's got a sword. He might not like that, right? John just courageously represented God, not really caring how it was going to affect, and he even took it to the highest level. Herod Antipas was the Herod ruling Galilee during the time of Christ. And there was an issue here that we see when we look again at verse 19 and 20. It says that Herod the Tetrarch had been reproved by him. What's that mean? John confronted the leader of the day on decisions and morality, immorality technically, that he was participating in. He reproved him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. Added to this all, he locked up John in prison. Here's what's going on here. So uh, basically John at some point in time, publicly out loud, face to face, however it happened, was confronting Herod Antipas because what had happened is he had seduced and stolen away his half-brother's wife. And so he took another man's wife, adultery, The other part of this that's just really kind of icky is that not only was Herodias his half-brother's wife, it was also his other half-brother's daughter, making Herodias his niece. This is adultery and incest. It's like, okay, yuck, right? But John called him out on it. Of course, Herod didn't like that, had him locked up, and if you know the rest of the story, Herod had him later decapitated. But what we see here is that John lived his life courageously knowing who he was, knowing that the the God he served was bigger than anybody before him. And if we know Christ as God, the same can be true for us as well. We can lovingly and courageously live out God's word. We can lovingly and courageously confront sin in the lives of people we care about. We can courageously live our lives on mission and serve others. We can courageously call people to discipleship and becoming a follower of Christ. And so because we know Christ is God, we too can live courageously. What is a courageous decision or a courageous action you have taken recently because you know Christ is God? Something that you're like, man, this is kind of crazy, but I just, I love this person. I love God. I, I have to speak up. I have to act out. And so we can act, we can live more humbly. We can live courageously. And thirdly, we can live missionally. I mean, talk about living a life on mission, living in the wilderness, preaching repentance and preparing others for the coming Christ. This was not a popular message, right? John's life was a life of mission. Verse 18 says, so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. John was constantly living on mission for the Lord. His message was a message of repentance, how is repentance good news? It says he preached the good news. How is repentance good news? Repent, 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 turn to God. It means that forgiveness is possible and forgiveness is available. I want you to think about some of those hideous things you've ever done in your life. Things that would be mortifying to you if other people found out, shameful to you. Forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is possible through Christ. So that is very good news, don't you agree? And so this is the message that John was preaching. He lived on mission. Well, one day, Christ is coming back. And he's going to gather humanity on his threshing floor. And he is going to take his winnowing fork. And he's going to sift humanity. And he's going to sort the wheat from the chaff. Which means that when we come to Christ, we realize very quickly our life is a life on mission. It's to help make more chaff Wheat. 
so that less gets burned up. More wheat for the storehouse of God. And so we need to live on mission. And here's what's so cool. We don't have to wear camel hair. We don't have to eat locusts and honey. We don't have to be out in the wilderness. From our homes, from our cars, from our offices, on the soccer field with other families, in your rec centers, wherever it is, you get to pray for people, have conversations with people, and constantly try to point people to the God who loves us so much and made forgiveness possible and available. That's what God's called us to. And so if we see Jesus as God, we'll live more humbly, we'll live more courageously, and we'll live more missionally because that's what it means to follow Christ. Well, I want you to take all of that and distill it down to three statements that I want you to close with as an application today. Three statements that I'm going to ask you to turn into a prayer here in a minute. And maybe you need to write down if you feel really serious about them. The first statement is this, I believe. In a minute, will you just tell God, I believe, and then fill in the blank about what you believe about Jesus. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus is Messiah. I believe that Jesus is Christ. Just, this is just a chance to declare and affirm who he is. And if you're doing that for the first time, don't forget, this is a, this is a confession of faith for you. I, I believe you died and rose again. I believe you're my Savior. I trust you. And, and come to Jesus for the first time and let us know so we can follow up with you. The second statement I want you to lean your heart into is this, I confess. This is a statement of confessing where we've strayed, where we've disobeyed. And look, sometimes we're wheat, but we act like chaff. So where do we need to ask for forgiveness? And so this is just a chance for you to confess before the Lord. And the third statement, and this will probably be one of the hardest, I will. In light of what you've heard today, what will you do different? When you walk out these doors, is it just going to be like, oh, another sermon, check the box, good, okay, let's go to lunch. Like, will anything change? Will there be any movement, any fruit from our investment of time together as a church family today? I will. Maybe you need to think about those humbly, courageously, you know, missionally parts, you know. Did you hurt somebody because you were being prideful? I will go ask for forgiveness. Humble myself. Try do, get a do-over on that. You know, maybe there's a sin that you just keep justifying, just keep doing it. Oh, that's a, I will stop that. Lord, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not returning to that again. Missionally, is there a conversation you need to happen that needs to happen with someone you love? Is there a sin that you need to gently confront? What's going to happen? I will what? Fill in the blank. I will do this because of what we talked about today. So I'm going to give you guys a minute. I'm going to pray with you. And then just give you a minute to pray through those. Spend, spend a minute with the Lord. And then Kevin will close our time. Lord, thank you for today. What a great reminder that you're awesome. You're holy. And we so desperately need you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ right now. Lord, that today the reminder of Jesus being God, the one who baptizes with Holy Spirit and with fire, one who one day will come to the threshing floor of humanity and separate Lord, we've seen this in your word before. You're going to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the wheat from the chaff. And you're so gracious. You've given us this big window of time to get right with you. Lord, I pray that if we haven't gotten right with you, Lord, that anyone here today or watching online right now will get right with you and admit that they're a sinner and believe in Jesus and confess their faith in him as Savior. 
Lord, I just pray that we walk out of here doing something different, being someone different because of the time in your word we spent. Spend a few minutes with the Lord right now. Why don't you just pray through, I believe, I confess, and I will, and lay that before the Lord today.